Hi, this is Elia Fishman, and welcome to our latest uh, series of talks. And this is going to be on misdiagnosis and abdominal CT. And I'll be looking at some of the strategies and some of the pitfalls in reading abdominal CT and what you could do to make sure you don't make these mistakes. Now, no doubt one of the biggest challenges in radiology, but it's not just radiology, all of medicine is medical error. This article published a couple of years back from the uh, Institute of Medicine, which is very much non-biased and only looking at the facts, estimates that 5% of U.S. adults who seek outpatient care each year experience a diagnostic error, that post-mortem exams spanning decades have shown the diagnostic errors contribute approximately to 10% of patient deaths, Medical errors, uh, medical record reviews suggest that errors account for up to 17% of hospital adverse events, and diagnostic errors are the leading type of uh, medical malpractice. And I'm not really worried so much about the medical malpractice. I am worried about the quality of what we do. It's also important when you read this note within the report, the committee concluded that most people who experience at least one diagnostic error in their lifetime, sometimes with devastating consequences, which means you could die. And despite the pervasiveness of errors and the risk for serious patient harm, diagnostic errors have largely been unappreciated within the quality and patient safety movements. Without a dedicated focus on improving diagnosis, these will only worsen as the healthcare system becomes more complicated. And I agree 100%. Think about it yourself. How much time do you spend with all of this paperwork, uh, QA, and this, that, and the other? The most important QA is can you read the films correctly? Whether the report is structured a certain way. People are putting so much effort into structured reports. There is some value for structured reports for certain things, and clinicians do like them, so it's important. But the most important thing is read the damn film correctly, okay? Do the studies correctly. Do the right protocols. In the COVID era, where our pancreas conference is basically based on outside CT scans, 80% or more of the scans we get, even though the people were told to do a pancreas protocol, is a single phase, and it's never clear what the timing is, what the injection rates are, and how the study is done. It's typically done poorly. Everyone by now should know that when you're doing staging of pancreatic cancer, you do a dual phase imaging 30 seconds and 70 seconds, injecting four to five cc's a second, using thin section CTs, multiplanar reconstruction, and ideally 3D imaging. Yet time and time again, we get thick sections, single phase, probably 90 to 120 seconds out, some oral, no good injection, you can't see the vessels well, you can't define the tumor as well as you should. Okay, there's no, there's no reason that's the case, yet that's what we see. Now, we talk about errors by radiologists, perceptual or cognitive errors are also a source of, uh, of error. So this article does focus on radiology, but also makes the point that a lot of our errors are because of insufficient sharing of information. We may do the wrong protocol because we're answering the wrong question, incorrect interpretation of the imaging results, or inappropriate selection of the test by the referring clinician. And referring clinicians often struggle with the appropriate imaging test, in part because of the large number of available tests 
and gaps in teaching of radiology. But even if you paid attention in medical school to radiology and you finished 10 years ago, what was good 10 years ago or what would be the ideal study may not be the ideal study today. So, so much of the training and teaching we need to do is not just the radiologist, it's the referring clinicians. And then when you look at all this data and you put it together, Mike McCary, who was a surgeon at Hopkins, showed that medical error was the third leading cause of death in the United States behind heart disease and cancer. But in fact, the numbers for medical error are typically underestimated because, for example, if someone dies and there was a mistake, there's no box for medical error. Patient died from lung cancer today, but someone missed a lung nodule three years ago where it could have been cured the patient's cause of death is lung cancer, not missed lung cancer. So medical error is an important contribution to poor patient outcomes. As heart disease and cancer are being attacked with medications and therapies, we need to also attack medical error. Now, in that article by McCary, the one point he makes, or one of the points he makes that I surely agree with, is that human error is inevitable. If you think you're 100% accurate, you're 100% incorrect. I remember when I was a resident way back when, someone told me that, rightly so, that the only radiologist who doesn't miss anything is a radiologist who doesn't read films. So making errors is inevitable. The trick is to figure out what the errors are so you avoid making them a second or a third time. One of the reasons we speak about AI is that we want to avoid error. AI helps the radiologist. We look at AI as a second set of eyes. So again, how can we reduce errors? Taking human limitations into account. When you ask how often is there error on CT or any imaging study, rate of interpretation error is up to 4%, but when you start looking at studies that contain abnormalities, the error rate is in the 30% range, which is somewhat astounding. Now, the majority of errors were errors of underreading, where the finding was simply missed, but there are also errors of overreading, which can be problematic as well. And Andy Rosencrantz wrote this article a couple years back that when you start looking at uh, missed findings, are uh, the number one reason where you see. Uh, people end up with um, addendum on reports. It's not that they say, oh, the liver lesion, which I thought was hepatoma, is a hemangioma. That happens sometimes, but it's where you simply miss the bowel tumor or the lung mass or the vascular lesion. Simply things are missed. 84% were a new finding, 5% an upgrade on the severity of an original finding, 3.9% a downgrade, and 6.9% other modification. But you can see 84% means someone missed something the first time around. Now, if I ask you the question, if you read fast, either make more or less errors or the same number of errors, I think all of us know you can read quickly up to a point. But when you read beyond that point, your errors are simply going to increase. And someone did this article where they picked up the speed of reading for radiologists by 20%, and uh, it increased errors by over 25%. Okay, so the faster you read, no great surprise, the more errors you're going to make. Okay, why does that surprise you? You know that from your daily battle in reading films. Just reading more films 
is not going to increase your quality. Okay, that's just the way it is. Now, people say, well, maybe you should have double reads. Well, you know, people way back when did mammography with double reads. But all of us these days are so busy that we barely read the study the first time. Double reading sounds good, but it's not going to happen. The only way it could happen is if the computer is the second reader. Okay. And then, of course, you look at some of the articles when we look at reinterpreting scans. Here was one article looking at uh, CT and MRs at, of head and neck cancer at an academic center versus outpatients, 41% difference in interpretations. We know that from CT scanning of the pancreas, we're about a third of the cases are read incorrectly. So there's lots of error out there. And rather than pointing fingers, you got to try to figure out what the heck can we do to make things better? And we want to do it the way Johnny Ivey says, to bring a common simplicity to what are incredibly complex problems so you're not really aware of the solution. And that's a very good way of thinking of things. We need to create simple solutions. Now, articles like this one by weight make the point that there is tremendous problems in terms of reading. Given the ultimate human task of perception, some degree of error is likely inevitable, even with experienced observers. However, an understanding of the causes of interpretive errors can help in development of tools to mitigate errors and improve patient safety. That is indeed true, but, you know, um, it's difficult because when you look at their charts, there are so many possible errors. Errors in radiology are broadly classified into perceptual errors and interpretive errors. Perceptual errors account for up to 80% of errors and occur when an abnormality is present on an image but not seen by the interpreting radiologist. Interpretive errors constitute up to 40%, so you can see a tiny, kind of an overlap, when an abnormality is identified on an image but its meaning or importance is incorrectly interpreted. Now, the interpretive errors don't bother me too much because if you say there's a mass in the liver and it's a hepatoma, someone else is going to look at it and they may say, oh no, this is FNH or this is hemangioma. If you say the study's normal, perhaps no one else is going to look at the study until the patient has increased symptoms and then you find it later on. So to me, the errors that are most concerning are the errors when things are simply missed. And those are the errors I worry about the most. And there's an article, look at the ways you can make errors Anchoring bias, confirmation bias, availability bias, satisfaction of report, attribution bias, inattentional bias, hindsight bias. The bottom line is when you look at this chart, oh my God, it's a wonder I ever could read a film correctly. I recommend when you read a film, don't read this chart first. But the chart does give you information and does provide a way of thinking about potential problems and perhaps can help you in your practice. Now, one of the things we also noticed in our practice, this is going back more than a decade, although there are infinite number of errors people can make, and in fact, there are infinite errors that people do make, a lot of the errors are simply the same errors over and over again. So it's very common errors. The good thing about things where the errors are common is that perhaps we could teach people how not to make those errors. So if we looked at, and we published an article on common misdiagnoses, looking at the reasons for the misdiagnosis, and then teaching you. One of the things we've learned from our own work is that when you go over errors and you show people where errors occur, uh, Brooke Jeffrey used to speak about a checklist 
where when he did trauma, he had a checklist. And when you ask him what was his checklist, he would say all the things I missed previously. Now, Brooke doesn't miss many things, but his checklist was the things that he knew were easy to miss, fluid or blood between bowel loops, things like that. So one of the things, again, is you need to think about how we're going to mitigate against making errors. Now, we looked at many different things. Now, of course, one of the things that's very important about error is the quality of the study. If you have a good quality CT scan, timed correctly, the uh, contrast is given both oral and IV correctly, you're going to decrease the number of errors. If you have a study where poor IV contrast, maybe no oral contrast, thick sections, motion, all sorts of issues, you're not going to do very well. And this article by uh, Lamoureux, in the absence of contraindications encouraging urgent care physicians to preferentially order IV contrast enhanced CT of the abdomen, uh, would increase detection of urgent pathology and short-term repeat CT. And they made the point that ER docs are often pushing for non-contrast scans. For some reason or other, they think that's going to save time. But what it does is it increases the error rate because you miss many things. Yes, non-contrast scans are wonderful for detecting stones. But beyond detecting renal calculi, you need to give IV contrast. And again, this idea about doing a study, and if you think maybe need IV then to do it doubles the dose, but you may not see something on the study that would be obvious with contrast. Urgent findings were more likely to be better characterized in the second CT when the first CT was performed without IV, followed by IV on the second. Our study suggests that in patients with acute abdominal and pelvic symptoms for whom CT of the abdomen is warranted, IV contrast should be strongly considered. Forget strongly considered, you should be using it. It makes no sense, and this is one of the things that is increasing our error rate. The results of this study advance our understanding of how administration of IV contrast for CT of the abdomen and pelvis influence detection of urgent and non-urgent clinically important pathology. To reduce potential medically unnecessary redundant imaging, this information may be useful for optimization of CT scan protocols. Duh, give IV contrast, give oral contrast, do the study right the first time. I always would speak about radiation dose and when people would ask me questions, What's the best way of decreasing dose? I always said doing only one study and getting study right the first time. When you start repeating the studies, you're doubling the dose. Um, this article by Megabo, and he was very clear because so many of the articles say not to give oral contrast, often not to give IV contrast. It's madness. Alec Megabo gets above the madness. Our emergency physicians do not see the oral contrast administration for CT hampers operational efficiency. In fact, they have expressed gratitude to our department for care and diagnosis. They have stated that delays in patient turnaround are more frequently related to overall demand on the scanner and not to oral contrast. They are acutely aware of the serious consequences of missed or incorrect diagnoses, either leading to an appropriate hospital admission or discharge, and will always choose good medical care over time slashing, corner-cutting methods that impress the dashboard monitors, perhaps at the expense of excellence in patient care. Well said, Alex. In summary, the RAD department at NYU Langone Medical Center, number three or four in the country medical centers, uh, reaffirms the benefits of oral contrast for CT of the ED patients. Okay, 
It's, it's the insistence on relentless attention to detail and insistence on the highest standard of quality and performance that are the keys to productivity and efficiency, most certainly not cutting corners. And again, there's an article recently in AJR where Perry Pickard makes the same thing. Based on differences in prior training and practice patterns, some radiologists would prefer to limit the use of positive oral contrast more than others. However, for those who believe, as I do, that it can genuinely increase diagnostic confidence and can sometimes rather unpredictably make a major impact on diagnosis, it behooves us to keep fighting for its use. Again, it's hard to imagine as the radiologist reading this study, as the person responsible to the patient for doing the study correctly, we have to argue about doing the study correct. Perry said a disturbing recent trend, however, is the increasing decision to forego oral contrast material largely or solely for increased patient throughput, typically driven by non-radiologists such as ED physicians, surgeons, and even health system administrators. As radiologists, we need to ensure that such a financially driven non-medical justifications are in the best interest of our patients. And the answer is, it's not typically in the best interest of the patients. And it really doesn't delay things. There's a thousand reasons why things get delayed. It's not radiology. Okay, so now that I can get off my soapbox, let's take a look at why pathology is missed on a CT scan. Now, this is kind of generically uh, a way of looking at it. One is poor reader search strategy. You miss a P in abdominal CT because you're not looking for it. It was rule out appendicitis, rule out acute polynephritis, rule out aortic aneurysm, you're not worrying about the lungs, perhaps just you give a quick glance and you miss the PE. Also, this is often driven by poor protocols. You're not sure if that's unopacified bowel, is the stomach distended or is it not distended? Is that gastric wall thickening or is it normal because the stomach's not distended? Or is that bowel showing a tumor or is it under distended? And often when it's Areas that are not part of the study or the study's request, like rule out dissection or trauma patient, you see something in the kidney, it looks sharply marginated, and you say, or you assume it's just a cyst, while it's simply a well-defined renal cell carcinoma, papillary in type. Also, this unsuspected pathology, one of the reasons CT is so successful is because if you say rule out appendicitis, you'll pick up appendicitis, but the truth is only 25% of patients referred for appendicitis actually have appendicitis. But in almost 70% of additional cases, you'll find out the reason, whether it's polynephritis, whether it's gallbladder disease, whether it's the aorta, whether it's the bowel. So one of the reasons CT is so good, it's an incredible problem solver for seeing what the clinicians think about, but what they don't think about. But incidental findings, you need to see them. I also put down the last thing, that checking our residents. In the old days, that is pre-COVID, we sat next to the resident and you would go over the cases or the fellows. But one of the points I noticed is when you go over the cases, you do it about 10 times as fast as you do regular review. And so often you listen to the fellow or resident and you kind of believe what they say. You're kind of not sitting straight. You're not reviewing the case or going over it the way you typically do. When you're dictating yourself, you're paying more attention. When you're going over the case, you're going over the case. You're not reading the case. So you need to be very careful when you're working with trainees to make certain you really look carefully at the case. And that indeed becomes very, very important. And there are certain things that relate to the protocols. 
And let's do this. We've gone for almost 20 minutes. Let's take a break and let's pick up right here and I'll be back in a few minutes. If you liked what you heard here today, please make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit our website ctss.com for lectures, quizzes, pearls, and more. Also, be sure to check out our apps that are available for free on the Apple Store. All links are in the description box below.